Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk to Roland Oliphant, who's on the ground in Kramatorsk at the scene of a deadly missile strike. And we discuss the Ukrainian economy, corruption and society with Timothy Milovanov. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 2nd of February, day 344. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols. Live from Kramatorsk, our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and joining us on the line is Timothy Milovanov, President of the Kiev School of Economics, Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and former Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture of Ukraine. I started by asking Roland, the latest from the ground. Um, so last night, you probably all know, we had a, a rather large missile strike in the centre of town. Um, it landed, I think, around about 10 o'clock local time. Large rocket landed on a four-story residential apartment block kind of bang in the center of town flattened it damaged kind of all buildings within a kind of 100 meter radius and we were there god i don't know about three or four hours trying to cover it and report on it because the rescuers did not know how many people were buried under the rubble so there was this huge overnight rescue effort going on to try and dig people out they thought they could hear people certainly at the beginning rescuers were calling for silence so they could kind of call into the rubble and find out if anyone was there um the latest figures um so this is uh, alexander honcherenko the mayor of kramatorsk talking at about ten thirty this morning and um, so that's about 12 hours after after the strike he said you know the current figures are three people killed eight wounded, two of those are in serious condition, 13 not so serious. And at that point, he said, we are looking for one more woman. Now, around about that time, I got back to the scene and uh, and there were still some uh, firemen and policemen digging around. Police, uh, The firemen didn't want to talk, but the, the cop told me, look, I don't know who's in there, but, but I've heard there might be a woman in there. 
over the next hour, that effort seemed to stop. And instead of kind of carefully picking through the rubble, they began to, they brought in the heavy kind of uh, bulldozers, earth movers to kind of just move um, the rubble, which which makes me think they they either found her body or they they kind of gave up hope. A kind of horrific scene, really. Um, there's some some video we record on the website. Julian Simmons, um, the Telegraph photographer, also filed a lot of pictures uh, from the scene, which you should see on the website. It's just just hor- horrific in the scale and in the destruction, but also amazingly kind of. I don't want to be corny or hackneyed about it, but kind of inspirational. I mean, the number of people who just showed up um, to try and work. You had you had soldiers, you had policemen, you had firemen, you also had just dozens, I mean, probably like hundreds, actually, of civilians, just local civilians and volunteers, you know, coming together to kind of form human chains, move things brick by brick, kind of work out together how to how to move these huge slabs of concrete. And then you know, throughout the night, there'd come a point where the, you know, the people leading the rescue would say, okay, everyone needs to be quiet now. The whole street, I mean, you're about hundreds of people would go silent, you know, and generators were switched off, the lights would go off because the generator went off, cones would go off, and you've got the whole, whole street, this incredible scene, hundreds of people just standing stock still, listening, just so they could possibly, perhaps, by some stroke of luck, hear somebody under the rubble calling when i spoke to a couple of guys who came down off the rubble after a couple of hours you know covered in dust exhausted they they came down for a cigarette basically and they told me when they were up there they said look you could hear voices at the beginning um and that was two hours into it um they didn't elaborate so that was last night and then lunchtime uh we got hit again um we i mean the city um so two more missiles about 500 meters from the first impact site um one blew up a bunch of garages, you know, residential garages where you would keep your car in the courtyard of a kind of residential block of flats. And the other one blew a massive hole in the road outside. The statistics on that are five people injured. I'm not sure how badly. I mean, there's videos from the moment of impact showing, you know, at least one guy kind of lying on the ground looking, not looking great, to be honest, um, but we're told no fatalities. Um, again, I don't know what they're shooting at. These second impacts made me think that they're targeting something and their first strike missed perhaps um, and they tried to correct their fire um, I'm not sure what they were aiming at um, it is the center of town so you know you know municipal buildings around about that they might be targeting there are a lot of military in Kramatorsk that they might be targeting on the other hand perhaps it's simple kind of terror bombing just kind of lobbing these things into the center of town I mean I, I can tell you for a fact Having spoken to witnesses and, and the neighbours, spoke to a lot of neighbours this morning from the first strike, that building that was destroyed was just a residential building. Normally, if there were soldiers in there or, you know, it was a military target, somebody kind of will give you a nudge and a wink and say, I kind of understand why that missile came in. Not in this case, not at all. And the second one, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, it just, just bang a big hole in the middle of like a courtyard in the mud and then outside on the road bang just like they've just basically used i don't know how many million pounds on these missiles but they've used one to dig a big hole in the middle of the road so whatever they're targeting they're missing so that's been my kind of past i don't know 15 hours now whatever it is just before we go to dom to add some more details to that could you just describe for us what the scene was like when you first got there you know as a journalist who who are you first looking to to talk to do you stand back to let the rescuers sort of do their work where where are you placed in in this scene so the first thing 
that crosses your mind is that something like this happens and you think, okay, I've got to go. So I was in bed. I didn't hear the A lot of people in Kramatorsk heard this impact. I didn't, um, perhaps because I'm quite a way away, but perhaps because I was watching rather a loud action movie when it happened. Noticed it, was tipped off by a friend actually, um, who asked how I was. Um, quickly, you know, woke up Julian and um, our fixer, Eugene. Um, and then, you know, within kind of 15 minutes, we were in the car um, heading to the place. We'd worked out the address. Everybody in town knew about it, um, basically. And then you're just kind of, you don't know what you're going to find, but you know it's big. Your job is to get there and the job is to observe, observe, observe. Um, and that was actually running through my mind that night. The job is to observe, to witness um, to be a camera with an open shutter and just record the facts. Um, and that's what you did. So, you know, you pull up, you get there, it's quickly apparent where the scene is because, you know, flashing lights, lots of soldiers, lots of police. Um, and we were able we were able to work quite freely, actually. You know, we got in there. By this point, I think by the time we got there, I mean, I reckon probably... 40 minutes to an hour had probably elapsed um, a bit more than I thought at the time between uh, after the, the strike because I didn't see any wounded people, which means all the injured um, had already been bundled into ambulances and taken to hospital. Um, you know, if you, if you got there straight away, you would see kind of people on the ground being looked after or blood running down their face and things like that. By the time we got there, there was, um, you know, a big fire engine, a big crane had been brought in, someone had rigged up a light, um, and you had um, soldiers, police and firemen, um, and people clambering, already clambering over this um, this pile of rubble, kind of discussing and talking about how to most safely um, move the concrete. And they were working frantically quickly. I mean, frantically quickly. Everybody knew that it's, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of it's a, it's a race against time. Right? Whoever is trapped in there hasn't got long to live, and you've got to move and move and move. So it's people, you know, frantically um, chucking bricks off, um, trying to do it as carefully as possible, discussing where you can safely move stuff to. Um, uh, you know, should we bring in the crane here? Things like that. Okay, everybody, be quiet, be quiet. Let's listen. Yeah, I think there's a woman in there. Dig, dig, dig. Um, all this is going on. Um, the journalists milling around, but basically trying to stay out of the way. Um, that that really is the rule, the rule there. You know, stay out of the way. Don't make a nuisance of yourself. Um, don't, you know, don't inhibit um, or, you know, disturb. What's the word? I've forgotten the word. You know, get in the way of, of the rescue workers. Um, at the same time as this is happening, um, you know, the police are already doing their criminal investigation. So you've got cops kind of going around, taking evidence, um, and then you have, you know, the ambulance workers working. So a few moments after we got there, um, a stretcher came out from the back of the building, um, was was kind of put down kind of discreetly out of the way of the, the big crowd. Um, some people gathered around and obviously tried to attend to whoever was on that stretcher and then just kind of, placed a foil blanket over them and and left them alone it was quite clear at that point that person had died um and eventually that body was um put into a body bag it kind of lay there for a bit no one went near it everybody understood what had happened and eventually you know it was uh uh bagged up and the the authorities kind of you know did the appropriate um paperwork with that and essentially that 
that was the scene that carried on for hours and hours and hours um, all night, this kind of absolutely frantic, frantic digging effort. I mean, it kind of reminded me of those pictures you see of the aftermath of September 11th, you know, a huge amount of cement dust and smoke in the air really getting in your lungs. My lungs still feel pretty ropey this morning. Um, and also just an immense, I mean, you could see the town just coming together, you know, absolute, you know, hats off to the people of Kramatorsk. It was, it was an, an immense effort um, in response. So the last thing to say just before I go, um, that final f- casualty figure, three dead, um, and I think we're on 21 injured, um, that's remarkably low given where this rocket landed. And I, I believe the reason for that is that most of these flats were empty. So I went around uh, today talking to, to witnesses, survivors, people in the neighbouring flats who were kind of clearing up the mess. Only one of those people was at home at the time. Almost every flat was empty because the uh, you know the owners are already abroad, have evacuated, and their friends are coming to clear it up. Um, there was one guy who was like, well, I've sent my family off to, I don't know, Western Ukraine or England or something. I don't live here anymore. I, I kind of stay near work. So there's no point in coming back. That's why the flat was empty when it happened. Well, that was good because the glass from the window that smashed, you know, that landed uh, on the bed where his, you know, 13-year-old child would have been sleeping. If it wasn't for the fact that so many Ukrainians have moved, um, especially out of areas like Donbass, um, if this was an, you know, if this was a, its regular kind of proper population level, um, you would have seen much, much, much higher casualties. Well, just one quick question from me, then I think Dom has a question before we go to um, Francis and our, and our guest. Um, Roland, you, you, you mentioned you've been talking to the, to the witnesses and the people watching the scene. Could you give us a sense of their, their emotions? I mean, you painted a, a kind of heroic scene of the town coming together, but I imagine there was a lot of anger there as well. Kind of. I mean, no one was kind of flying off the handle who I spoke to you today. There was a lot of kind of uh, phlegmatic kind of um, pragmatism. I mean, there's a, there's a school next door. Um, it's um, So in the former Soviet Union, um, they have this kind of heritage in Ukraine, Russia and places like that, where they have ordinary schools will have specialisms, right? So there could be a music school. And it's not like music school, oh, you've gone to music school after school or something, or you go to music school at university. No, that's your regular school you go to from like infant school age all the way through. And it's your regular school, but it's got a massive specialism on that particular thing. The one there is, um, it's an art school. So, you know, kids go there and, and they churn out at the age of 16 really accomplished artists who go off and become artists and architects and things. Um, Anyway, that place lost every single window, just gone. And, and, you know, the internal doors have in many places come off the, come off the hinges. Um, you know, the place is a mess. I, I kind of wandered in today and met the head teacher, and she was kind of very stoic about it, um, very like, you know, it's not going to stop us. We're doing online teaching anyway, that kind of thing. And, you know, then, you know, one of the other teachers comes in to, you know, talk about the clear up and was like, well, girls, this is, um, I can't actually, I'm not going to repeat the word. <laughs> it, was a, it was a Russian swear word, which is quite foul. But, you know, it's just like said that and everybody laughed. Um, so a lot of kind of like crack on with it. Um, and I think it, remarkable, you know, this kind of, like, I mean, people are used, have, have found a way of coming to terms with this. No one's happy about it. I'm not saying people are kind of cheerful or laughing at off or unaffected, but like there was another guy Um he was actually at home when um, when the rocket hit. He was in a block of flats opposite. He was luckily um, sitting in 
in a back room, so not on the side of a flat facing it. Um, so he was all right. And his sister was living, lives in that block of flats, but was in part of the building that wasn't affected. And she was rescued um, somehow, taken to hospital, and by, by this morning she was back at a friend's house, and she's fine. Um, and it was like, uh, so is she okay? So yeah, yeah, she's fine, she's fine, no, she, she's alive. I was like, well, um, and he you know, I said, well, have you spoken to her? So I'm like, well, you know, I mean, she just talks too much. I mean, I can only have five minutes, but like, you know, every time I call her, the phone's engaged. So I know she's gossiping with someone. She's fine. Um, it was just this kind of, you know, kind of way, this wry way of, um, you know, kind of, kind of taking it on the chin and, and, and moving on. Um, and I think it's just that that's that's just what you've got to do to survive. And one of the women there who's tidying up was saying, "Look, like, I just moved back to Kramatorsk. She went away at the beginning of the war. Um, she went to Poltava region, um, to a place that was meant to be safe. She came back in November because she was like, well, um, it's expensive to rent the flat and nowhere's like home. And then I realized, like, this could happen anywhere. And I said, well, you know, the battles, you know, the Battle of Bakhmut is 20 miles down the road. And um, this just happened. She's like, this, this could happen anywhere. Right, nowhere in Ukraine is safe. These rock, you know, they fell in Dnipro, they fall in Zaporizhia, they fall everywhere, um, and you might as well be at home. Um, so the attitude—I uh, mean, these people are difficult, difficult to shock now, difficult to shake. You know, I mean, taking it in their stride to a degree and and, and moving on. Um, uh, I, I don't want to minimise it, but I definitely think there's a strong element of that. Well, thank you very much, uh, Roland. Dom and Francis, can I come to you before we introduce our guest, Dominic Nichols? Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Roland. Um, So just very quickly for me, the only other thing to say is there's a lot of talk now, or situation, the context for the February 24th anniversary. So people saying, is Russia going to plan a big attack or et cetera, et cetera. So Andrei Chernyak, who speaks for the main intelligence director of Ukraine's MOD, said that Putin has given the order to capture Donetsk and Luhansk by March. Um, he said that yesterday to the Kiev Post. And then Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, uh, speaking to French media last night, said, we think that given that they, he means the Kremlin, live in symbolism, they will try to do something around February the 24th. So a lot of chat about this date and whether, whether it means anything. Um, yes, we know symbolism is important to Russia. We thought May the 9th last year their uh, Victory Day parade was going to be something. It, it passed largely without without sort of major significant incident. Um, and in the brief I had with the Western official on Tuesday, the, the official was asked this question about symbolism and the official said there are no indications at the moment, or, you know, this is a Western official, not Ukrainian. Western official said there's no indications at the moment that Russia is planning anything, um, anything moving. There's nothing moving. Now, that is unsurprising given the, the capability that Russia has in Ukraine at the moment, which is largely just human waves running at Ukrainian positions. Um, however, their priority is to get something, get something out of this fight they've had in the Donbass around Bakhmut. Um, which is 25 k's south southeast of where Roland is talking to now. Kramatorsk 20, is 25 k's away from Bakhmut, so this area, Russia has been smashing its head against Bakhmut for the last few months. The Wagner Group have largely broken themselves against it, um, so they're, they're desperate to try and get something, which they might try to 
in in light of the 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 anniversary um but we just need to sort of put this all in into context that there's not an awful lot they can do there may well be some more some more missile strikes but but that's about it sergey lavrov russia's uh, foreign minister he he's uh, he was speaking to the press and he's saying that um that, that russia is going to overshadow um the the anniversary overshadow whatever's planning in the west he said um he said that the the west and ukraine will uh, quote not the only ones to gain the world's attention uh, unquote on that day it's like you know hey don't worry sergey you've got the world's attention if you're marking a, a year a year after you started your lightning three-day effort to take over the country do not worry the attention is going to be on you but i think we just need to to think about the importance of symbolism and whether or not russia can do anything and actually what's more important that they launch a load of missiles to mark the anniversary year-long anniversary of this war or the fact that they are still they are they are going nowhere nowhere quickly and are, and are and are failing in this war a year after they started it thanks very much tom uh, francis Turley, can i come to you before introducing our guest well thanks david and good afternoon to our listeners around the world and roland do stay safe out there I started yesterday with the subject of military donations and there's been an interesting update in this space this morning in that we're hearing that the United States may allow other countries to send their F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine but will likely stop short of donating its own warplanes to Kyiv. Now, that's, as I say, according to reports, officials have told the New York Times that Ukraine will most likely receive F-16s from Denmark or the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands is believed to have around 40 F-16s in its inventory, whilst Denmark is preparing to phase them out in favour of a more modern F-35 stealth jet. But there's a possibility that they will donate their older models. Of course, Joe Biden has ruled out sending any now, but this is an interesting green light potentially from officials. And we know the Pentagon were, were considering sending them themselves uh, on this issue of sending planes and fighter jets to uh, to Ukraine in terms of of the, the broader Western alliance. So something that no doubt we'll be watching this space on um, in the coming weeks. The big story today, though, is that European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has arrived in Kyiv for meetings intended to highlight support for Ukraine as the first anniversary, which Dom just referred to, of the invasion nears. She has tweeted out earlier today, good to be back in Kyiv, my fourth time since Russia's invasion, this time with my team of commissioners. We are here together to show that the EU stands by Ukraine as firmly as ever and to deepen further our support and cooperation. Now, as I spoke about yesterday, of course, President Zelensky is very keen that uh, the EU makes more strides in order for it to become a member of that. And no doubt there'll be talks about that ongoing. We've already seen that he has called today for more punitive measures against Russia by the EU and is said to have discussed a new EU sanctions package with Mr. Lyon. I imagine we'll hear more about that later today or tomorrow. And if so, I will update listeners on that. They had a shared joint news conference a couple of hours ago, said that there were plans to speed up the EU sanctions campaign against Russia, which they felt had slightly slowed down, which of course would tally with what we've been reporting now for some time. Uh, but just lastly, it was, I was very struck by the remarks of uh, Mr. Lyon when she was saying that she was very impressed with the efforts of Ukraine to stamp out uh, the corruption and embezzlement, which have, of course, been um, issues in the in the past for the country. 
I'll read her quote in full. I'm comforted to see that your anti-corruption bodies are on alert and effective in detecting corruption cases. I also commend you on reacting so rapidly at the political level to make sure that the fight against corruption is delivering tangible results and is further stepped up. And in that vein, we're hearing that a notorious, quote, warlord oligarch, close quote, that's what he's sometimes referred to as uh, a man accused of keeping sharks in his office to intimidate his enemies, has had his home raided in Ukraine. Now, this gentleman was once regarded as one of Ukraine's most powerful men. He has a majority of shares in oil companies, a major bank, and the TV channel that launched Vladimir Zelensky's comedy career before he entered politics. And we see pictures today of him, pictured in a, in a tracksuit and slippers inside a sort of hunting lodge style residence near the city of Dnipro uh, with security agents conducting a search. Now, they have not commented yet on the raid, but there are officials being quoted in Ukrainian media. They're saying that it's part of an investigation into claims into this gentleman uh, that he may have embezzled uh, one billion pounds worth in two oil companies where he was once a majority shareholder, also suspected of potentially dodging customs duties. So there's lots and lots of detail in this story. And we We've done a big report on it, which I recommend that listeners check out on our website. As I say, there is a connection with Mr. Zelensky in the sense that some people credit him with um, being involved in the 2019 presidential election, throwing the weight of his media empire behind Zelensky in the campaign. But obviously, President Zelensky feels that this is an opportunity for him to stamp out any charges of corruption within the country at the moment. He feels strong enough to do so. This is part of a pattern of ongoing investigations now that we've been reporting on for several weeks. And clearly, the EU are responding very positively to this as I'm sure other parties within the Western Alliance are too, because they know the importance of this, that the money that is going there from Western countries continues to uh, uh, go to the right places, but also that the charge against Ukraine of corruption, which has sometimes been used by pro-Russian elements, is not allowed to stand up, that this is something that actually is shown to be being tackled. And I know we'll talk about that with our guests later today. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So that's the lay of the land today, David. Thank you very much, Francis. So, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Timothy Milovanov. It's uh, an honour to, to, to welcome you to, to this discussion. Just to start, we'll, we'll come to just maybe some of your thoughts on the uh, recent news and the, the raids and, and some of the corruption cases that Francis talked about. But would you first just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how the last year has impacted on your life? Thank you. It's my privilege uh, to be able to speak to you here um, and... Um, I'm a Ukrainian. I grew up in Kyiv, and in late 90s, in the 1999, I think, I moved to the United States to do my PhD um, in economics. And most of my career has been built in the United States. Um, I also held position at uh, in German universities. Um, and um, but in 2014. Um, there was a revolution in Ukraine and it was an anchor for me to get involved with Ukraine because I saw people being shot and killed by our own uh, secret police um, for just being protesters, for protesting, uh, trying to be, you know, disagreeing with the decision of then-President Yanukovych 
to cut uh, ties with Europe and um, uh, turn towards uh, Russia. And then, uh, you know, the, the rest is story after that uh, protest. Uh, the protesters won and uh, Yanukovych fled to Russia. Russia annexed uh, Crimea and uh, propped up separatist movements and moved in the military in the east of Ukraine. And it was 2014, 2016. And at the time, I was becoming more and more engaged uh, because I felt the responsibility as an economist uh, that uh, I have to help build in institutions. Uh, and I think that's very different. I reflected upon that uh, uh, with many of the reactions of other people. Ukrainians have this, even if we are far away from Ukraine, we feel responsible for what our government is doing. And uh, not everyone is like that. I think that's a very clear, some cultural uh, aspect of what's happening right now in Ukraine. Uh, then I became, uh, you know, I was given to lead the Kiev School of Economics. I became a deputy chairman of the board of supervisor board of the central bank. And then when Zelensky came to power, I was minister of economy in the first government of Zelensky. I continue to serve on multiple boards and as an advisor to Yermak. Uh, but my heart is with the with the Kiev School of Economics because I believe that education is key for the future generations uh, to be uh, successful and prosperous and democratic. And, and um, you know, just before the war I came, I was in San Francisco at a conference on education uh, out of all things, and uh, um, you know, the flights were getting cancelled, so you know, I, I knew that something was up, so I had to go because I couldn't bear the idea that, that there will be something like a war. I still, you know, I still hoped it wouldn't happen, but uh, I just felt that I, I should be in Ukraine with the school, with my family if something happens, and you know, I'm there ever since. Thank you very much for for that summary. I just wondered what what were you, what are your initial thoughts around some of the stories, the news stories, the the raids, uh, some of the sackings, you know, the past few weeks that Francis talked about in his report. You know, I know many of these people, um, maybe not personally, but uh, you know, in context of my work with the government, and um, especially this minister of uh, deputy minister of defense who was. Uh, who was uh, today arrested, I think, uh, for the procurement scandal. I think the key was um, the procurement scandal, which triggered um, this um, um, flow um, of investigations and um, kind of clean up of the house. Um, and um, it really is, is, you know, it outraged me, but I think it's the, the same. Every, every Ukrainian had the same reaction to it. You know, come on, guys, you know. Are you even human? We are fighting here, you know. People are either dying and protecting, you know, with their lives uh, as, as military, as soldiers, you know, uh, the, the sovereignty of Ukraine, the existence of Ukraine. Uh, others are donating their, you know, kind of uh, last funds that they have, savings, you know, uh, and uh, someone is trying to enrich themselves. So there is an outrage, and um, uh, an outrage channeled also itself, and that's new for Ukraine through three channels. One, the political channel, um, and we talk about it the most uh, because Zelensky, President Zelensky, makes this uh, very clear statements and leadership uh, um, show demonstrates leadership, but also you know dismisses people or asks them to resign. Uh, but there are two other channels, the media, because some of the stories were broke uh, by um, were broken by uh, by the investigative journalists, uh, 
And then the third one is law enforcement in parallel. We have uh, over the last eight years, I think, have created a uh, pretty well-functioning and comprehensive anti-corruption framework of law enforcement agencies. And all of these uh, scandals, are, in fact, uh, have been either first brought to light through these agencies, through arrests, or done in parallel, and uh, some info was leaked to the press. Uh, so it looks like the institutions are working, but uh, we are outraged. Uh, I think everyone is outraged, and I'm trying to be diplomatic about this. I think some people are calling uh, for these officials to be basically shot you know, and executed, but I, I don't think we're going to go that way. It's just like an emotion. Thanks for that, Timothy. Can we just talk a little bit about some of your thoughts on on corruption? In a, I was really fascinated and intrigued by something you wrote on Twitter recently when you talked about corruption in Ukraine being a culture problem. What do you mean by that? And could you sort of describe to us how that might have changed over the past 10, 20 years? So we all inherited the Soviet Union. You know, I was in, in high school when the Soviet Union collapsed, and I think a lot of people got cynical um, and a lot of powerful people got very cynical and happened across the Soviet Union. It happened in Russia, it happened uh, in Ukraine, it happened in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, it happened in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, everywhere, you know. And I think uh, what a lot of people learned then, in my view, wrongly, it's that, you know, it's, this is the world in which everyone is for themselves. Um, you know, uh, there's no empathy, um, everything can be sold and bought. Um, and you, you see, you know, that's, that's when we got in all of these countries, we got oligarchs actually coming out. Some of these oligarchs have roots to the mafia or organized crime, which sprang, you know, up during the nineties, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and I think Ukraine has been fighting that culture because Ukraine had a very powerful, very strong democratic movement um, in the 90s, in the early and late 90s, uh, Narodny Ruch and some others. Um, and um, there has always been this battle between what I call the old and the new school of thought on how the state should function. And the old school, I, I think it's exactly what the, you know, the Russia has the same problem. In fact, I think this is the problem. This is the culture, this post-Soviet Russian culture, where we believe um, that there, you know, we don't believe in humanity, we believe in force. Everything is for sale. And that's the belief. So we're going to bribe and buy out all the politicians we need. And we're surprised if we get prosecuted or something doesn't go our way, we then look for a conspiracy theory that it must be that the West has bought them out. And, you know, and so all that thinking is really, is really very egoistic, very inhumane. Uh, and I think Ukraine has been fighting it. And uh, we have the peak of it in Ukraine came, actually happened around 2013 when then President Yanukovych uh, made the corruption uh, the industrial problem and um, basically centralized it. And that's partly, not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons why the, the revolution of dignity was nationwide, was, was so powerful. And, and over the last eight years, I think we have cleaned up a lot of these officials, but it is a culture problem because it, there are pockets of corruption and uh, culture that remain. And some of this in, um, in you know, basically propped by oligarchs because 
they try to continue to hold, you know, their grip on power, what they can get. And, you know, that's, that's a very, you know, that's a very difficult process to get rid of them. Uh, and it cannot be done, you know, it cannot be done. I, I've been a minister, so it cannot be done overnight. Uh, I've been, so here's, a, here's an example. I fired three people who I felt were corrupt. I didn't have evidence, but I fired them. I had uh, reports, but this was not kind of court proof reports. I couldn't prosecute them. So I fired them. They opened a criminal case against me because they said they were unjustly fired and they were technically correct. In, in spirit, I was correct. In form, I was not. Okay, so I, eventually the court dismissed these cases against me, but they wanted to put me in prison for firing them. And you know what happened during this year? Well, one of them is facing now seven to ten years for corruption. You know, that's not a publicly known case, but actually there has been enough evidence finally, and we are prosecuting them. Not we as the, you know, as me, but we as the state. But it took us eight years to gather that evidence. And in the meantime, they were using the legal system to resist. And so you have this balance, you know, you have to find the balance between prosecuting people who you basically are convinced uh, that they are corrupt and do it in, doing it in a, in, a, in a legal way through courts. And the courts have been corrupted um, over the last 20, 30 years. We have cleaned up the, the Supreme Courts, the higher courts, but the lower level courts, that's a lot of work still. So, you know, it's, it's ongoing. In, in procurement, uh, non-military procurement, we have cleaned up the corruption, in my view, quite, you know, almost. I mean, it will never completely disappear. But we also, central bank and financial system has been cleaned up. Um, but the energy sector continues to have a lot of uh, uh, monopolistic companies or monopoly companies, which are owned by oligarchs. And this recent news about uh, Kolomoisky companies and the raid in his apartment and uh, at these companies is actually a symptom of what I just said, that oligarchs continue to be present uh, and powerful in some industries. But um, they used to be present in all industries of Ukraine. And now they are present uh, in their remaining to be present in some. Uh, and I think, uh, I hope Zelensky will be able to get rid of them. That's a fascinating summary. Thank you for that. I just want to pick you up on something you, you mentioned before. I mean, you said there were sort of roughly three um, sort of groups that are pushing this. It's, it's Zelensky himself, law enforcement and journalists. And I wanted to ask, to what extent do you think that Zelensky is being impelled to act on corruption? I mean, you mentioned law enforcement and, and journalists, but what about activists and, and Ukrainian civil society? How, how does that play into this? And kind of linked to that, do you think that sometimes the Western media overplay Zelensky's importance in this? What do you make of that? Well, you know, when when I was thinking about coming back to Ukraine or not, you know, when I was deciding on this, I, a Nobel laureate at Chicago talked to me about this and he said, Tim, don't kid yourself. Uh, most people, actually almost everyone, cannot change much in life, you know. There are some fundamental forces at play that are going in your region, post-Soviet Union. And, you know, there, there are hundreds of years of history behind those forces. And, uh, but sometimes you will be at the place where with some probability, with some chance, you will be able to change something a little bit that will over years, over hundreds of years, will make a difference, huge difference. And he said, think of a ship, you know, which is, uh, 
which is it's a, it's a big cruise cruise liner and, and it, it's it's it, it's sailing you know you, you can you can be you can try to steer it but the effect will be will be seen you know miles later and so i think you are in that position that's how he was trying to convince me to go to ukraine and uh, help us in the course i think zelensky in that position of course there are these forces and the the prim- primordial forces the desire of ukrainians to be free and of course corruption gets in the way corruption is what made us made our military weak in 2014 that's why russia uh, took Crimea without a single shot. Well, there were a couple of shots, but, you know, symbolically without a single shot. And that's because our military was corrupt as an institution. So we understand that the society that if we want to be free, if we want to be independent, if we want to be sovereign, our institutions have to be sovereign. And that means they cannot be captured by a foreign agent or by someone domestically. So, of course, the pressure is coming from, from people, from the people of Ukraine. But Zelensky is a historical figure because I've worked with, uh, you know, worked for, not as close, other presidents, I understand them in Ukraine, uh, and I think many of them would have negotiated before and tried to find some kind of compromise. Zelensky takes no prisoners, you know. He just goes through. And I think we are very, very fortunate we're historically fortunate as Ukrainians. It's for the first time in centuries we have a government which is on our side. Because every time before, when we got in a conflict or in a war with Russia or with someone else, we mostly had either a very weak government or a colonial government during the Soviet Union times or during the first you know, couple of decades uh, when we had pro-Russian governments. That's no more. And so in that sense, both points are correct. The fundamentals are the desire of the people to be free, to be not under Russia anymore, ever. But Zelensky is a historic figure to be able to make that happen. You've mentioned your involvement in in the government. Um, I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about your role in the land reform laws. These might not be particularly well known outside of Ukraine, but they're certainly seen as a a key piece of of legislation from the Zelensky government. Um, What exactly were they and why were they they so important? Land market reform, to me, was a crucial step forward uh, to actually get rid of corruption because um, the oligarchs and... uh, um yeah many many of uh, powerful people in ukraine uh, were benefiting from the lack of the market in two ways first they would keep people who owned land in some kind of in a very unfavorable position uh they would say we can rent land from you you don't have any other options so basically we are the only buyer on the stock give us it for a penny you know and that was very unfair and the second one, they actually used uh, state-owned land to benefit from it. When I was a minister, we, we actually found out that in some, on some of the contracts uh, where the state-owned land was used uh, to, to grow something, to plant and harvest uh, by this uh, oligarchic company, we actually would have on top of that pay something to them. Because they structured contracts in such a way that the net effect for the state was not something positive less than the market value. No, it actually was negative. Taxpayers would have to pay the bill for uh, some of the inputs of these oligarchs, and they would benefit, they would get all the revenues. And it has been going for 20 years. 
And I remember speaking in the parliament using the quote of Margaret Thatcher that democracy is built on property. And I, I think it's true. People have to be independent uh, to be able to have voice during democracy. They have something to defend. Uh, and then, you know, people would come out and say this is, you know, populists would come out. And I would know because uh, the law enforcement would give me reports on them that that guy controlled 60,000 hectares, that one 80,000 hectares, that why one 120. And they would be all in peace and they would be uh, talking about, you know, uh, talking about um, how uh, our law is trying to, you know, how this is very capitalist and makes people vulnerable. Furthermore, when I was given this speech, there were all these pro-Russian now who are in exile or on the run or searched by Interpol. There's those MPs were there and they would be kicking me, you know, they would be punching me under like, you know, I I'm speaking and they are, they're hitting me in my kidneys or in my, uh, you know, during the speech. So it's like it, it gets physical there, you know. Um, and uh, that was not long ago. That was two or three years ago. So, you know, the grip of these guys is amazing. The fact that Zelensky is actually has taken over them and is moving is, is amazing. Could I ask you, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview um, that you're an educator, president of the Kiev School of Economics. To turn away from corruption and economics, how are your students coping with the stress of the, 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 the war? And what is your school doing to, to help them? in many ways it's tragic because some of our students got under occupation you know and we have this lady um, she's now abroad and she doesn't study with us anymore but uh, she was kept uh, in the basement by the Russian troops by Kiev uh, close to Bucha without water for two weeks and of course we feel responsible we feel responsible that that happened we feel responsible that we wouldn't give them enough resources and protection but you know it was impossible on the first day so you know it's tragic it's gonna stay with us but uh luckily fortunately no one has died from students who study we have a lot of alumni and a lot of students who decided to get mobilized in the first weeks of the day so we have programs where up to seven percent of alumni have already been killed in action uh so that also takes a toll uh, but we have been able to recover and we have been able to teach even in the spring of 2022 online and starting from sub September offline. Uh, we took a new bachelor class in, new master classes in, and we have about 70% of students being physically studying in person uh, in Kiev. We are very, very proud of it. And I think this is, is going to be a generation of leaders coming out from this school. When we speak about corruption in relation to Ukraine, we often conceptualize it, I think, here as grand embezzlements, uh, as if everything is involving millions of dollars. But I wonder if you have any comments about smaller, more localized, say within towns, instances of corruption and how it occurs and solutions for tackling it in the long term. Um, most of it has been cleaned up. And I think that the, there is a drastic change between 2014, the revolution of dignity, and now. And the, the sort of case in point is patrol police, the traffic police, the, the cops who you meet. You know, they were nasty uh, before that, and all they were fired, and, you know, they were the new guys. It's a completely different force. Now, is there episodic corruption? Yes, absolutely. Do they get prosecuted? Yes. Uh, uh, so in many ways, I think I'm more afraid of the American cops now when I get pulled over in the U.S. than of Ukrainians once. Um, now, uh, doctors, you know, some of the doctors in some areas continue to be, you know, there's an expectation of some 
um, and it takes two to tango. You know, the next expectation of giving some presence. Uh, and uh, but you know, I've I've spoken with the minister of health. He's working on this. Uh, and uh, previously, there have been reforms. I think there is corruption in the construction industry for similar reasons that it is in some other countries, including developed economies, permits, zoning laws, you know, different corporations coming in. So that's going on. Uh, that continues on the municipal. And again, that's been in the news. That's been on the agenda. How successful? Uh, that's an open uh, question. I, I think it's been cleaned up, but not to the effect that, you know, not to the level that I would have liked personally. Um, uh, courts, courts, lower level courts continue to be a problem, I think. But uh, sort of, you know, if you go to the state office, to, to an administration, that is all gone because it has been digitalized. People have been fired, prosecuted. So that has been cleaned up. So all in all, I would give eight out of 10 score on PT corruption. Uh, but also I want to make a, a, a point on the grand corruption. You know, some of my friends have worked in Hungary. And what happens there is not imaginable in Ukraine. You know, so the way that the government there is trying to come in and demand certain things for to get licenses, permits, or, you know, part of the businesses to be able to operate, all of that was in Ukraine under Yanukovych prior to 2014. None of it is there today. That's very interesting. Thank you for that. And then just a much wider question, if I may, which is, how would you summarize the economic condition of Ukraine at the moment at this point in the war and thinking long term that if this does prove to be a war that goes longer than many of us would hope, uh, what what does the economic future for Ukraine look like? Uh, early in the war, I moderated or uh, interviewed Paul Krugman, uh, Nobel laureate in economics, about uh, similar questions. And I kind of agree with his answers. He compared Ukraine uh, right now during the war to the Great Britain during the World War II, saying it's a smaller country, relatively speaking, to the, to the adversary, and it requires international support. And the economy will rely on that support during the wartime and uh, will rely on that support to rebuild and recover after the wartime. And he says, I'm not too concerned about this support during the wartime. I'm more concerned about whether there will be sufficient support after the war for the economy to recover because the sense of urgency will disappear or might disappear. And I agree with that. Basically, it's a wartime economy with some private markets and services. We, re we rely on international support because we spend most of our GDP, well, not most, but 20 to 40% of GDP on defense right now. And so we need to, you know, no country can, can sustain itself. And it will continue like that until the war is over. Um, I don't want to minimise the, the the detail of corruption, but just taking it as a as a problem in the round, how strong do you think the desire is from others or some members in the EU to use the issue of corruption just as a means of keeping Ukraine out? And is this just a rough and tumble of politics or do you think Ukraine is being treated unfairly compared to some you know, members of the EU who have their own questions to answer about corruption? So uh, first, I think Ukraine uh, has an unfairly bad reputation for corruption. Again, I, I'm not saying there's, that's not an issue. As I just said, that's been an issue and we're taking it heads on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. And, it, you know, it's two steps forward, one step back, right? But, man, you know, I've been to some other countries and uh, in some of the Eastern European countries, not recent, uh, yeah, recently, not too far ago, a couple of years ago, uh, I was asked for a bribe by a traffic police. That is not going to happen in Ukraine. That is not possible. I mean, okay, there may be something, but just a flat out like that. 
And what my friends are talking, telling about Hungary, the way the business is done there, that's not happened. So in that sense, uh, Ukraine, when I look at the ranking, there are some countries which are definitely more corrupt than Ukraine. They, they score much better on perception. I also think Russians uh, have been pushing this uh, argument domestically inside Ukraine, but also corrupting people and from outside. And so there is a narrative. Uh, and it's a part of warfare. So, But uh, there's no easy way to address it for Ukraine. Ukraine cannot just say, listen, it's unfair, we uh, are not guilty. That doesn't work like that. We really have to do it heads-on and big, uh, demonstrate the fight against corruption. I think Zelensky is doing that. He, he understands it very well, uh, and I think uh, he will manage. Thank you. And a final question for me, if, if I may, just on the economy more broadly, from your experience as a, as a former minister. I mean, a lot of people talk about mobilisation of, of Ukrainian civilians to, to fight. Can you just tell us what the pressures are or the pressures would be on President Zelensky to mobilise the population? But what effect would that have on the economy if you went to a complete war footing? Thanks, Timothy. Ukrainians want to defend Ukraine. And in the beginning of the war, there was actually more people trying to get mobilized than they were, you know, that they were allowed. A lot of people were turned back. But as time passes by, you know, we all realize that, you know, let's say if you are my age, which is 40 something, uh, not everyone is in a good condition, you know, to be able to physically fight. You know, two months is one story. Sitting, you know, for a year in trenches, it's a different story. Uh, and so uh, it, it kind of uh, it becomes more difficult. Um, Zelensky has been balancing it quite well. Um, so I have not seen the, there's a kind of trouble issue, but uh, I expect that mobilization will continue and it will be gradual over time. The government is trying to set up very clear rules how different companies can uh, sort of book people away from mobilization so that they have core personnel continue to work for the economy. There is a recent uh, cabinet resolution just two days ago, on Monday or Tuesday, I think, uh, and it uh, seems very sound economically. Uh, so I'm not so much concerned about the economic part of this. I'm more worried how the, the, you know, that the politicians do it in the right way and that the Russia doesn't hijack this narrative to start uh, uh, polarizing the society inside. But again, I, it looks like I'm confident things will get through. Okay. Timothy, can I ask you, um, just to start to wrap up, um, is there anything we haven't spoken about uh, that you think is important to mention and our, le- our listeners should, should understand? You know, these this are evil people, you know. This is the war between good and evil. And before the war, I used to think that, you know, there's always truth to both sides. Uh, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. We have to have a balanced view. But that's because I was intellectually lazy to look uh, to look at the details and find out for myself. Um, also, the other thing I've learned is that during the wartime, you basically cannot trust anything except eyewitnesses or people who are eyewitnesses and you trust them. Uh, because uh, the, it, it all gets confused and it all gets politicized and there's a lot of propaganda. But I do think that Russians are nasty. They're evil in the way they are waging this war. I'm not even talking about the excuses for the war in the first place. And I think we're going to see, you know, very dark future in Europe if Ukraine doesn't win this war. Um, it's not about Ukraine. It's it's about encouraging or discouraging this, you know, war crime type behavior. And it has to be stopped. Uh, Russia has to be put in check so that... Uh, we don't see problems like that, in, in, you know, for other nations in the future and for Ukrainians too. Let's start to wrap up and go to our final thoughts. Uh, Francis Turnley, what are you looking at and what should our listeners be thinking of in the next few days? 
Well, we just heard a reference there about war crimes. And of course, I always try and return to them whenever I can. And I would point listeners to a long read on the BBC this morning about uh, a Russian military officer who has spoken uh, openly about the actions of soldiers that he served with, allegations of brutal interrogations of Ukrainian men shot and threatened with rape and absolutely hideous uh, descriptions. Um, but it's very, very, um, I think, not not helpful in, as such, but it's informative as to the kind of things that we've heard have been going on now for many, many months. But hearing it from somebody who was there and saw it uh, for close hand from the Russian perspective. Uh, this individual has forced to resign the army and is now ha had to flee to uh, another European country. Some other insights that are quite interesting in it is how nobody in the army, even as uh, in early February 22, truly believed that there was going to be an invasion of Ukraine. He says at the time, no one believed there would be a war. Everyone thought this was only a drill. I'm sure even senior officers didn't know. Well, that would tally with some of the other research that we've spoken about on the podcast from the Institute of the Study of War, amongst others. He also speaks about how common and looting was of objects, uh, thefts. Um, he talks about how when they were in Melitopol, that it was just looting was absolutely rife. Soldiers and officers grabbed everything they could. Could they climbed all over the plains and went through all the buildings. One soldier took away a lawnmower. He said proudly, "I'll take this home and cut the grass next to our barracks." Buckets, axes, bicycles—they bungled all into the trucks. So much stuff they had to squat down to fit in the vehicles. He also describes some inner tensions within the Russian armed forces between different divisions and how certain units would get control of, of certain buildings and would get to stay in there with lots of food whilst others would be left effectively to have uh, very minimal rations and the it doesn't he does not paint a, a picture of a happy Russian army that's for sure also descriptions of torture as well uh, as I've already discussed which I won't relay here but it's 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 really hideous stuff and he ends with an apology to the Ukrainian people I know there'll be many people who will say that it's not enough for a Russian soldier to flee Russia and then denounce the actions from the safety of a foreign country but I think these are revealed insights and they will be vital for future prosecutions for war crimes. Roland, very quickly, what will you be doing in the next in the next 24 hours? Where will you be looking? Um, I'm going to get a bit of sleep. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I mean, if you want my final thoughts, I've got I've got to one. I, I was kind of reflecting on what I found myself saying earlier um, about kind of resilience and attitudes. Now, I remembered that, you know, Kramatorsk is a place that you know, it's not the first time it's been here. I mean, back in April, there was that horrible strike on the railway station that killed 60 people. I mean, it's, it's these kinds of atrocities are things that people have got used to. And in my conversations with um, soldiers, doctors, ordinary people, people who've kind of thought about the future of Ukraine, they're all talking about how um, there's going to be another war after this war. And that's going to be the war with kind of you know, mental health, national trauma, things like that. Um, so that that's just something that occurred to me and it's worth meditating on i think um given what happened yesterday here um the other thing um in terms of battlefield stuff um you know don was talking about this this warning would do we believe it or not that the russians are going to try and do something on the 24th and there's this claim that putin has given the order to capture all of donbass by um march um is it true or not i don't know but i must say i mean i get the feeling that the russians are on the move in a way i mean they're, they're really trying to the past few days here have felt like the russians are really trying to um 
get things going again, get some momentum, uh, not just here, but down in Vugladar, um, you know, there's reports across the line. Um, I don't know if it is the, the great feared spring um, offensive on the way, but, but I've definitely got a feeling that, you know, things are moving, the clouds are gathering. Um, so I would, I would keep an eye on that. Thank you very much, Roland. Timothy, as our guest, would you like the very final words? Well, thank you for having me and thank you for giving voice uh, to Ukraine and covering it. And, um, it's hard for me to say something optimistic after this horrific details coming up every day. Kramatorsk, everyone heard today. Just we have one question, why? Why are they doing it? And I think it's our responsibility as citizens uh, to get informed uh, because I think uh, this... Because bad things grow in the darkness and uh, it comes from ignorance of other people. Had we um, been tough on Russia in 2008 after uh, they invaded Georgia, this war and other wars wouldn't have happened. And so we are in some sense responsible for inaction. So let's not be inactive this time. Thank you. Timothy Milovanov, uh, president of Kiev School of Economics, thank you very much for your time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Isabel Bouchard and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.